Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome to Talking Tudors, episode 172, and the fifth instalment of all things 16th century women. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Throughout August and September, we'll be exploring the lives of 16th century women through a series of podcast episodes here on Talking Tudors and video lectures, which will be published on my YouTube channel, so be sure to subscribe. While all the content is free, I ask that you consider supporting the event by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Please visit patreon.com slash Talking Tudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. August's prize is a copy of Dr Estelle Perronk's brilliant new book, Blood, Fire and Gold. The story of Elizabeth I and Catherine de' Medici. Thank you so much to Dr. Peronk for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tutors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTutors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm delighted that joining me on the show to talk about the secret codes of 16th century women is Vanessa Braganza. Vanessa is a public, intellectual and book detective and a PhD candidate in English at Harvard. Her research has been profiled in the New York Times, the Times of London and Smithsonian Magazine. She's currently writing her first book entitled The Secret Seekers, Renaissance Writers and the Birth of Code. Braganza's work rewrites the history we think we know. Through intensive real-world sleuthing, she aims to uncover voices from the past that have gone unheard till today, including those of women. History is not simply a collection of facts, it's a series of choices. It reflects what we choose to see and value. Braganza's detective work aims to expand society's vision of who is worthy of recognition. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Thank you. 
Welcome to Talking Tudors and all things 16th century women. How are you, Vanessa? I'm very well, Natalie. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I've been looking forward to chatting with you for quite some time now, so I'm excited that we've made the dates work and the times work. So let's start by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. So my name is Vanessa Braganza. I am a PhD student in Renaissance literature at Harvard, and I'm also a, a JD student, a law student, at Columbia Law School. So you're a very busy woman by the sounds of things. So thank you for making the time. So I think a lot of people may have come across your name with some recent articles that they've been about the work you've done, fascinating work into, you know, 16th century codes and ciphers. So when did you first become interested in this, this area, this subject? I, I really sort of stumbled into codes and ciphers in the Tudor and Jacobean periods about three years ago when I stumbled over a cipher belonging to a Jacobean woman, funnily enough, Lady Mary Roth, who some may know is uh, the first English woman to publish a, a work of extended, extended prose fiction and also to publish a secular sonnet sequence. So I uh, was wandering through a book fair and rounded a corner actually on my way to the exit and saw a book behind a, a glass case with a monogram on it, a, cipher, a, a monogram cipher, and uh, recognize it from a photo that I'd seen of its only likeness, which is in private collections uh, I'd seen uh, about seven years prior. And then just through working my way through the mystery of Roth cipher and what it meant, became aware that this is a huge period for developments in cryptography, really beginning a century and more earlier at the court of Henry VIII. And so I actually ended up fashioning my entire dissertation, which is forms the research basis for my first book around these adventures and the, the side of history that people don't see or even think to look for that these ciphers reveal. So before we dive into some of the sort of specifics that you've you've studied, can you tell us a little bit about the development of cryptology during the 16th century? So so cryptography really begins to see its renaissance, its expansion. Uh, at the court of Henry VIII, there are what we call simple ciphers. This is what you would think of as the most basic kind of code, the substitution of one symbol for every letter of the alphabet. That type of cipher begins to be used at the court of Henry VII. It doesn't really kick off in England until Henry VIII, and then you start to get simple ciphers used in sensitive foreign correspondence. There starts to be sensitive, much more sensitive foreign correspondence after the Protestant Reformation, after Henry breaks with the Catholic Church, and then you start to see factions, Catholic and Protestant, among European countries. So there's an occasion for those kinds of ciphers, political necessity, 
But you also start to see these ciphers within the royal court that are largely popularized by Hans Holbein and Catherine of Aragon's cipher, which I'll talk about, is one of these. These are along the lines of what you and I would recognize as monograms, but monograms amped up, not just two initials, but 10, 12, maybe even up to a dozen letters whose meanings are not immediately apparent. Holbein starts to design these in his sketchbook for people at the court of Henry. They start to come into fashion in jewelry, on book bindings. And they're also in a way driven by this atmosphere of danger at the court of Henry VIII. These people are preoccupied with secrets and small wonder when you have someone like Henry at the helm who's so immensely destructive and so immensely tyrannical on multiple fronts that it creates an occasion for these symbols in which you can keep your secrets to yourself, but also in a way flirt with the idea of revelation and flirt with danger and put them on display. There's there's a poem by Thomas Wyatt in this period that really captures this sense of danger and its first line is take heed the time lest you be spied your loving eyes you cannot hide uh so you really get the sense of claustrophobia that that becomes the the atmosphere and the breeding ground for these ciphers at court yeah that's so fascinating i i spend a lot of time studying the life of anne boleyn and i know that a letter that really struck me that she wrote in early 1535 she in fact says all eyes are on me and it's this really claustrophobic feeling and the idea that everyone is watching you constantly you know so I can understand how they these ciphers actually flourish during this time that's that makes a lot of sense. If you go to Hampton Court Palace even today you have what are called eavesdroppers literally head and shoulders uh, busts as it were a little less than busts of um, people carved into the wood in the eaves who are looking down on you. And so you have this alarming experience also of the messages being sent to you that you're always being watched. Um, so it was it was a very claustrophobic time. And I'd love to hear more about the work that you did on the, the cipher recently to do with Catherine of Aragon. And maybe if you can tell us a little bit of, about what insights it offers us into her life and her personality as well. So this was one of many, it is one of many ciphers in the notebook of Hans Holbein. This is a notebook referred to colloquially as, colloquially as the jewelry book. And it's currently in the collections of the British Museum. Book is a little bit generous uh, in its current state. It used to be a notebook and we know that it was bound at one point. At some point between the 17th and 19th centuries, the drawings were cut out and mounted. So now it's quite sad, actually, especially for someone like me. I'm actually a bindings historian by training, uh-huh. that uh, that all of that information in, in in what would have been the bound book is lost. But, um, but they're fully available online. These drawings are digitized. You get uh, designs for belt buckles, designs for various kinds of decorations, book bindings, and these ciphers as well. And as I've described them, right, it can be up to 10, 12 letters in a single symbol, just intertwined, overlapping. And so I was working, I had decided that my dissertation was going to be on the history of ciphers from Henry's court up until the English Civil War. And so I was aware of Holbein's designs. I started just one day working my way through each of these drawings and said, right, there's got to be a way to systematize these. They're overwhelming symbols. They hit you with all these letters. Well, you've got to start by breaking them down. You've got to start by listing 
the letters that the component letters, the ones that must be there, and maybe the ones you think that might be there. So I got stuck on this one because of particular letters that you can't do much with. There's certainly an, the letter X in there because at least one of the parts of that letter doesn't overlap with any other letters. So that's my criterion for the letter is a given. And you can only do so many things with X. And then to a lesser extent, C and K, uh, which were both also in the cipher. So I'm sitting here, the way you do with a crossword clue, that it becomes personal, right? You sit with it and you agonize over it. And then at some point you've invested so much time in it that you just can't bring yourself to get off it. And I was doing this actually at a cafe next to Harvard Yard, Harvard where I'm, uh, where I'm doing my PhD. And I have a, a group chat, a WhatsApp chat with some of my PhD friends in different fields. And I sent them the picture of the cipher and I typed it. I said, this damn thing, it just won't come together and it can't be with an X. I mean, how much can you do with an X? As soon as I hit the send button, it clicked. <laughs> and I wrote out, I wrote out all the letters for Henry. I wrote out Henricus Rex and it did have all the letters for that name. And then I said, right, there are a couple of letters left over, the most conspicuous of which is the K. And I just on an intuition checked to see if I had all the letters for Catherine with a K and I did. And the interesting thing about that kind of a moment is that it feels very much like an epiphany. Uh, it is an epiphany and it, but it's not an end point. And that, I think, is where it, it really opens a door. It's just a beginning. So that's really where my adventure with the cipher started, not ended. The next task was to three out of Henry's six wives are Catherine. Happily, in some sense, Holbein is only alive for Catherine number one. So that eliminates some complexity for testing this out as a, vi as a viable solution and figuring out what might be the particulars. And then my next move was to figure out, we spell Catherine of Aragon with a C. And although English spelling is obviously non-standardized in the early modern period, signatures are often static. And so I started to look up contracts and various letters, various documents, digitally available documents that Catherine had signed after her marriage with Henry VIII. And she invariably signs herself Catherine the Queen, Q-U-E-N-E, -E, and Catherine with a K. And so there, and that signature is consistent. So there was another piece of supporting evidence. And then just because this was a design for a pendant, if you look at the sketch, Holbein's sketch, those squares, it's got 10 squares across it in three rows, are spaces where jewels are supposed to be mounted. And if you look at uh, the top, it's got a loop where a chain or a ribbon can be run through to hang it around your neck. And so thought, okay, let me just, let me just take a second look at the portraits we have of Catherine of Aragon, just on the off chance there might be some monogram jewelry in there. And sure enough, there's an early 16th century portrait of Catherine with a, it's quite subtle, it's a choker with K-shaped links with pearls in them alternating with Tudor roses. So you have a precedent for Catherine wearing monogrammed K jewelry as well, specifically. So, so at that point, and then at the same time, I was checking to see whether she even overlapped with Holbein in court, because Holbein's second stint in England as the royal painter begins in 1532, and Catherine gets pushed out of court in 1533. And so they do overlap. And Holbein has this wonderful ability, demonstrated ability, to play chameleon. Uh, this is a man who, it's a pun I enjoy using, I think it really applies to him, enjoys changing his colors, or it, rather is able to change his colors as the man behind the canvas. Probably the most 
famous in instance of this is his portrait of Anne of Cleves, which uh, goes so disastrously wrong for Anne of Cleves, and the consequences don't seem to touch Holbein. So as a craftsman, he has an effect on political matters without being of an autonomous political value. So the appropriate parties were in the right place at the right time as well. And you have a painter come, painter and, and artist, who has this ability to play chameleon by virtue, no doubt of his own attributes, but also by virtue of his trade. So, so this is how this kind of a solution, proposed solution comes about to a cipher. The, the aha moment becomes the gateway to something more. And that's been true of both of the ciphers that I have discovered in one case and rediscovered in the other case. And it's wonderful because it's really emblematic of the fact that these symbols make you view history differently. They're not ends in and of themselves. They are perspective shifting. And then once you've had an epiphany, you go back to what you thought was familiar history and it rewrites the history for you. And the way in which this cipher rewrites what we know about, or rather enhances what we know about Catherine is we have a very well documented history of Catherine actively resisting Henry's attempts to divorce her. She was, her nephew was Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. She was in contact with the Pope. We have that documentation. And even to Henry of her digging her heels in and saying, no, this is my title even as, as, as it was being taken away from her. And so this cipher in the first place underscores that. In the second place, it also gives it a new dimension, a very public dimension, even a facetious, audacious dimension because it's a pendant and because it was meant to be worn out in public. And that's the beauty of these symbols in a way is that they're only decipherable to those in the know. And so you can literally wear a secret out in public if it were ever cast this pendant if it were ever actually made and uh, flaunt it in front of those who don't know how to unscramble it, how to decode it. And that puts a, a new dimension on defiance. It puts a new flirtation on Catherine's and other tutors' relationship to danger as well. That is also fascinating. I I, I saw the, the photos that you posted of your actual notebook and your pictures, and hopefully we'll be able to share some um, on social media so people can see. And it was just, I love that detective work. I think it's what intrigues me about history, even when you're not specifically looking at ciphers, when you've got your teeth into something, a question, a mystery, and you're trying to solve it, it's it's that real driving force and, and partly why I love what I do as well. So you have also done some work to do with Mary Queen of Scots, another fascinating woman. Tell us a little bit about Mary Queen of Scots's use of ciphers and how she not only concealed messages in, in kind of symbols and ciphers, but also in embroideries, which is, is really fascinating. Mary is a woman up to her neck in ciphers and different types of them. Uh, she's imprisoned in England for nearly two decades from age 25 to 45, and I'm 28. Uh, I'm a new 28. So when you think about it in those real terms, these are the, the years of your youth. So much change happens over those years in a person's life. But dear, and so we've, we've tended to see her very often in popular depictions and in the popular imagination as a victim. There's very often this sort of Schiller inspired, and I think it's even antecedent to Schiller, um, relationship of Mary, Queen of Scots to Elizabeth I, which often has a substantial component of physical beauty and Elizabeth, the sort of old hag who is powerful and envious of and therefore punishing the beautiful young Scottish queen. 
And it's about so much more than that. Both of these women, both of them were dealing in ciphers. Both of them are incredibly politically shrewd and playing this chess game that's partly channeled through ciphers in which you have to be at least one step ahead of your opponent. Mary had been angling at the English throne for quite a while, and that had been a long source of contention between Mary and Elizabeth that she had actually incorporated the Tudor arms into her own coat of arms. And Elizabeth had been back and forth with her via ambassadors and correspondents to remove it, remove the Tudor arms because it was a t- more than a tax claim to uh, the English throne. So Elizabeth finally, when Mary flees to England to escape the rebellion of the Scottish nobility, Elizabeth imprisons her. And there she she sends ciphered letters, some of which remain undeciphered, actually, and, and all of which are in England's state papers to various allies in Scotland and France and elsewhere. And so those ciphers, that trove of letters, which which really, aside from the Babington plot, which is the couple of ciphered letters that ends the life, people haven't really taken a dive into and as a whole, they really recharacterize Mary. They recharacterize the terms of this engagement with Elizabeth and recharacterize Mary as a real political contender. Circumstances notwithstanding, this is a woman who is incredibly storied. Part of that is is within her own lifetime, storied as the loose and promiscuous w- woman because she married or she was married by James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell, who assassinated her second husband. And so she became very quickly storied as a loose, promiscuous woman. The casket sonnets, which she supposedly wrote, now scholars rightly really doubt her authorship of those sonnets, supposedly declare her love for Bodwell. So she's this romantic figure. In reality, she's this incredibly, incisively intelligent figure uh, and endlessly ambitious. And someone who went through an ordeal that pushed that ambition and life force really to, to the breaking point. Her poems and her prayer book that she wrote towards the end of her life are really very hollowed out. She's been through 20 years of this and more at the hands of Bodwell, at the hands of Elizabeth. So so her, her body of ciphered letters really recast her as a powerful political contender, as opposed to a romanticized figure, which has long been the reputation. And these monogram ciphers, as monogram ciphers often do, I found they, they let us into a bit of her emotional experience. This is the interesting thing about those monogram ciphers is that once you unscramble them, you begin to understand the occasion for creating them. And there's one particular, they're collectively known. She she did quite a, quite a few embroideries while in prison. Some of them, many of them are of animals and some of them are ciphers. And one of them in particular is very interesting. The letters of the monogram in the center of this embroidery unscramble to the names Elizabeth and Mary. And the Latin motto around the border translates to the bonds of virtue, virtue, very ironic in tone, are tighter than those of blood. And it's actually gesturing to the fact that when Elizabeth initially imprisoned her, Elizabeth was playing very innocent with her. Um, Her letters to Mary during that time, 1567, 68, are, oh, you're upset. You're upset about what's happened to you. And justifiably so, you're not, you're not, thinking straight, I, I'm not going to take offense at anything you say to me at this point, because you don't recognize that I'm your ally, in fact. So Elizabeth was claiming alliance, even if she imprisoned Mary. So Mary is in this embroidery, treating that very ironically. And it also just how the painstaking nature of these embroideries, right? 
someone had to, Mary would have had to sit with these embroideries over an extended period of time. And so in, in sitting with a piece of needlework for an ex extended period of time and, and sitting with one of these ciphers, she was also sitting with the message in her mind for a prolonged period of time. And so there was a lot of anger, understandably, predict predictably so, that is woven into and encoded in these monogram ciphers. Yeah, I love that, the woven into the actual cipher, the, the emotional impact that that had on, on Mary. And I think there's a really great one that has, if I remember correctly, it's a, a ginger cat and a and a mouse, and she's obviously, you know, alluding to the situation going on between them, but it's so clever as well, isn't it? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Another use of symbols, and, of course, the Tudors are heavy on symbols. Tudor portraiture is full of it. Amazing. And so apart from obviously these very famous women that we've been discussing, are there what other women are using ciphers at this point? Is this a common practice among the nobility and you know aristocratic women? And does it does it filter down at all? Or is it just mainly nobility using this? That's a that's an excellent question. There are additional women, women who are not as popularly known as these women who are using ciphers. They do tend to be noble women. And I think part of that is that noble women are in higher proportions literate than uh, non-noble and non-royal women. And I think that part of it also is the occasions, the particularly the political occasions that noble and especially royal women have for these ciphers. Uh, a couple of examples, actually one example that's going to contradict what I've just said, um, Lady Mary Roth, obviously a, a noble woman writing in the 1620s, which is also around the time that she devises her cipher. Now, her cipher decodes to the names of the two characters in her prose romance, the Urania, who stand in for herself and her extramarital lover, William Herbert. So you get a symbol that knits them together. And then on the second book on which it occurs, the book that, that uh, I found at one of London's rare book fairs, it seems to be an ownership mark for her son, which is very intuitive if you think about it, that any child is represents an intertwining of their parents. So, so there's an example of a noble woman. A non-noble woman, albeit someone in the service of the crown who also uses ciphers, is Aphra Bain, who is commissioned by Charles II. So way fast forward to the 1690s and, and the restoration when the English monarchy is less secure in itself following the civil war and the execution of Charles I. And uh, there is war between England and the Netherlands. So at that point, uh, Charles II uh, hires Aphra Bain, who's otherwise known as Agent 160, was actually her, her, um, her pseudonym or her, her code identity, as it were, to travel to the Netherlands and to persuade one of her coincidentally former lovers, to turn spy for the English. And so some of her correspondence is in simple cipher. Charles I, uh, Charles I's queen, Henrietta Maria, was writing in cipher as well. In fact, some of her correspondence was strategically unciphered because at that point, by the 1630s and 40s, ciphers had become so widespread that people were expert at decoding them. Uh, the first real spine network is under Elizabeth I. So you get a massive expansion in ciphers. And, and Henrietta Maria actually would plant false information in unciphered letters in the hopes that Parliament would soak up the false information uh, that was provided as a kind of low-hanging fruit. And so as ciphers become more commonly used, you also get unexpected rifts on 
you know, where is the real information located and where is the false information located? Yeah, that's so interesting. And I was just thinking in terms of learning how to create ciphered letters, did you come across information? Is this something people are being taught? Um, do you always come up with your own code or just that sort of thing? Sure. So, so it's less about learning any particular symbols and much more about learning patterns and algorithms. So uh, you could you could use any symbols you wanted to. You could use the letters of the alphabet and substitute A through Z for a different combination of A through Z, right? So uh, A could correspond to F, B could correspond to G, and so on down. So it doesn't really matter what symbols you use or what numbers you use even. What matters is your grasp of how infinitely you can vary correspondences and algorithms. So the most basic unit of ciphering is just simple substitution, right? You know, uh, A corresponds to this symbol, B to this symbol, but then you can riff on that and you can you can change the correspondences according to a fixed formula. So say I'm sending you a letter and uh, I decide every seven letters, every se seven alphabetical letters in my document, I'm going to shift the correspondences by two characters clockwise on a volvel on a cipher wheel. You would have to know that. So that's called a polyalphabetic cipher. It's actually the the basis for the Enigma code that the Germans used in World War II. Uh, the only difference is that that was on a machine, so it was a lot faster. You can even hide one message within another ostensible message. So I could send you a recipe for a pot roast, and there is uh, a message hidden inside. That's called steganography. Uh, and at that point, you have to, that's much trickier because it looks like something else. It doesn't look like a ciphered message. So you have to be picking up on the fact that maybe every other letter, if we're if we're doing something simple, every other letter spells out a hidden message. So, so this was really a question of human ingenuity. There's a, a German monk called Trithemius in the late 15th century who says that you can never really master the art of ciphering because you will always know less than that which you have not discovered. There's always more to discover. It's kind of, as a law student, it's kind of like the logic problems on the LSAT, actually. <laughs> you, can always, you can always increase the complexity of the patterns. And so you just have to practice it until you gain a facility with dealing in patterns. So you mentioned that steganography, and that was something when I was doing a little bit of research into your work and just in general ciphers and, and this kind of area, I came across that. Can you tell our listeners what that actually is a little, you know, go into detail a little bit more and how it was used during the Renaissance period? So this was one of the more elaborate forms of ciphering. It was invented in 1499 by the monk I mentioned before, Trithemius, who published what he claimed was a book of spells. And in the introduction, he said, I've discovered a new method of secret sending secret messages, secret communication. Unbeknownst to anyone, there are aerial spirits all around us. And if you know the spells, you can channel them and send secret messages via these aerial spirits. And then every chapter proceeds to provide the spells by which you're going to, and, and also a description of the personalities of each of these sets of spirits that uh, that can help to send different types of messages. The reality was, and this I this cracked me up completely the first time I, I read about it, is that those spells are just fairly obviously nonsense words. And 
according to a different algorithm for each spell, there is a hidden message inside in a combination of Latin and German. So that what, and those, those messages actually tell you how to cipher, right? So I think the first one is take every other, take the first letter of every other word and implicitly encode a, a, a message in, in the first letter of every other word. And so what Trithemius is actually doing is not dealing in black magic. He's actually writing a cryptography manual in cipher, which, and, and fully knowing that most readers are going to look at this and, and see the direction, see if go outside when the planets are aligned and face east and keep saying these words until the spirits appear. And it's really, it's really humorous as well. I mean, you, you one, one has to think that Trithemius probably had an excellent sense of humor. It's a great joke, great practical joke. So how that mode of hiding one plain text within another, right? That's what steganography is, that uh, you have what appears to be a spell. And in reality, there's something else hidden inside. Uh, so quite different from one of Mary Queen of Scots's ciphered letters, which looks like a page of symbols. You know there's something hidden inside. So so then how this comes to be used is actually still kind of up for grabs in the Renaissance. We know, for example, that uh, Elizabeth I's court astrologer, John Dee, was a reader of Trithemius. His hand-copied manuscript of Trithemius's steganography is in the National Library of Wales, recently acquired. And so... We know that he read Trithemius, and the question becomes, how much did he know? Because John Dee famously wrote a book called Actions with Angels, in which he writes out some of what he calls angel language. Now, is this another case of Trithemius' spells where there's something hidden inside? Well, cryptographers have actually tried to work this out, and Dee's angel language fits the profile of a polyalphabetic cipher. The trick is that one can't find, no one has yet found, a specific correspondence of the letters that produces a legible message. So then the question becomes, is steganography just the basis for a good joke? Is this a, a joke cipher that's meant to keep you guessing and keep you trying? And you'll never get a correspondence because it just fits the, the profile of, of a polyalphabetic cipher. So so the, the uses of steganography are murkier in the period. And I think with, with some good reasons, substitution ciphers, both simple and polyalphabetic, are the main mode of encrypting sensitive political correspondence in the period. And steganography maybe is a little riskier because the message really is there in plain sight in plain letters. So so perhaps a little easier to decode if you're if you're wise to the fact that there is a message in the first place. Absolutely. It's so fascinating. I can I can sense myself falling down some deep rabbit holes yeah. thanks to these <laughs> manuscripts that you're talking about. So you strike me as a person who loves mysteries. Um, <laughs> what other historical mysteries have you worked on or investigated? Really, that's it actually up until up until now. The next actually well, the next thing that I would like to would like to investigate is that Charles I actually has a body of undeciphered letters. So Charles I, when he was imprisoned by Parliament pending his execution, actually burned most of his papers, including the keys to his ciphers. And so this is not something I've yet actually begun to work on, but I can tell you that that's the next thing that I'd like to work on, is these are substitution ciphers, seeing if if one can decipher some of Charles I's letters. And sat with monogram ciphers for a while. I think that's where I'd like to go next. Um, I don't know how you do it alongside your studies. That's amazing. <laughs> so I recently um, heard you give a talk. Uh, it was online. Uh, did you want to tell us a little bit about that? 
the one where you said something along the lines about symbols and ciphers have the power to liberate people's voices. And I loved that. I just thought that was so, yeah, such a wonderful way of putting it. I I did a a wonderful program called Harvard Horizons, which is sort of Harvard's answer to TED Talks. And uh, eight of us in different fields give a talk on our research. The wonderful thing about ciphers in this, throughout this period, all, all two centuries of it, is that in a in an incredibly turbulent and and uh, destructive for various reasons set of circumstances, you get these symbols that it takes effort and time to unscramble that sit there in plain sight, daring you to decode them. They don't have any particular religious iconographic religious dimension, and they have this inscrutability which seems to preserve them from destruction. And so, what is wonderful about that is that they seem to survive at a higher rate, particularly, I think, during the Protestant Reformation than maybe other documentary forms of evidence. And so if one can, if one notices what's hidden in plain sight, if one goes looking for them, and if one is able to decipher them, then they unlock quite a bit of information about the person to whom they belong. And I think Mary Roth is my favorite example of this. The book that I discovered at the book fair with her cipher on it was actually that the book inside was published two years after her lover had died. And so just that fact that this is a lover's symbol on a book published two years after he died unlocks the revelation. She was thinking about him two years after he had died. Even if you stop there, it's it's liberated her way of thinking. It's liberated something of her voice and something of her intention by locking the information up until someone comes along who can decode it. And so so this is this is what I mean by liberating people's voices by locking them up, that these by concealing information, by restricting access to information. Funnily enough, these uh, these ciphers serve as kind of time capsules for information until such a time, whether it's in 1500 or, or 2022, when someone comes along who has the information to unlock what they contain. And, and in that way, they're protected in a strange way from the destructive forces around them. And more than that, when you do unlock them, they contain a wealth of information that other documentary sources perhaps do not. Even in Roth's case, for example, by their very existence, they can say something, their very existence at a particular moment in time. So, uh, so it's a paradox, right? They lock up information, but they liberate people's thoughts and people's voices in a really incisive way. Well, I imagine that there's lots of people listening that are now inspired to go and do a little code breaking themselves. So, I love it. I encourage it. <laughs> so what advice would you give to people that are that are, have, you know, a, a mystery in front of them and they're hoping to decode the message? Do you have any any advice or any steps that they might take? So the first piece of advice would be something that one of my my undergraduate book history professor actually uh, said to me and to, to the, in the class I, I took with him, which is put yourself in the path of discovery, which is to say that believe that discovery is possible. So much of what these ciphers give us is a new way to look at history. It's not a, it's not a set of facts that is decided upon that you just receive and consume. History is not finished. It's certainly not finished with us. So believe that, that there are things to discover and, and really indulge that impulse is the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say, particularly if you're dealing with something like a a monogram cipher, is when you're making a discovery and when you're dealing in 
these this sort of density of information, these symbols are designed to be overwhelming. So often when I show someone a monogram cipher for the first time, they're like, and I'll, uh, the first question I, I always have is, what what are the letters in here? You start with something, you start with something just very foundational, which letters are in here? And uh, people very often will say, oh my God, I don't know. Uh, because there's so many, it's overwhelming. Where do you start? And so my second piece of advice is find always find a way to systematize the way that you process information. For me in the monogram ciphers, this means working left to right and starting with the letters that must be there, the letters that don't overlap completely with other letters. This actually, funnily enough, applies to law as well. <laughs> you know, you, you you start with a case with all these concepts, all this jargon and precedent and whatever, and you have to start by breaking it down into manageable bites. And then once you have a good handle on what's there, then you're in a position to say, here are all the things it might suggest. So you start by narrowing it down before you can broaden out into all the possibilities. You have to have a very solid handle on the information. So, so those are the two things that I would say that I really encourage people to approach history and not just cryptography and not just ciphers with this really inspired sense of there being something there which people may not have discovered before. And also indulging the sense of history coming alive. It's very real and empirically supportable to enter into someone's frame of mind with the right data, with the right information. So I, I would say that obviously fiction does that beautifully and brilliantly well and engages larger audiences. But even if you're a historian or a budding historian, you can still do that. So uh, I really encourage people to enjoy and engage the feeling of people coming alive, historical figures coming alive. That's why we care about history. It's a huge part of why we care about history. I, I can imagine that our listeners would love to find out more about you and your work. So where can they go? So they can go to uh, my website, which is theembraganza.com slash wixsite slash home too. And I'll actually give you that URL. For yes, them. please do. And also my uh, Twitter account. So I'm at Vanessa Braganza. Okay, great. And I'll add those links to our show notes to make it easy for everyone to, to find you and your work. And I can't wait to follow along the journey as well. And Vanessa, thank you so much for coming on to Talking Tudors and for being part of all things 16th century women. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. <music>